Hello everyone and welcome to Unorthodoxy. I'm Duncan Rayburn and I want to play you a talk I gave recently at a public forum on the topic of conspiracy, controversy and clickbait. More specifically on what makes things like these interesting. The talk took place very early in the morning and there are signs here that I have been somewhat sleep deprived. First, the sound is a bit distorted in places because I pinned the mic too high up on my shirt. There's nothing I can do about that now, so I'm hoping it's tolerable to your ears. Then second, I make two errors in the talk that I should have noticed while I was speaking, but, well, I didn't. Again, sleep deprivation. I just want to mention one of these, though, since the other one is a matter of indifference to sane people. If you pick up on that mistake, which relates to how I refer to a particular philosopher's work, well, then more power to you. The more important mistake to correct is that in talking about Jean-Charles Nault's book, The Noonday Devil, I refer to how he apparently is talking to monks about staying in their cells, which is not quite right. Nault is referring to Evagrius Ponticus, who is talking to monks about staying in their cells. And if you have no idea what I could possibly be talking about in mentioning this, well, then keep listening. I hope you find this exploration of what is interesting, interesting. I'm really glad to be here, and, and what I've tried to do is basically string together a number of uh, disconnected thoughts into something that will hopefully resemble an argument. <laughs> so obviously I, I deliberately gave the topic an unusual spin. Conspiracy, controversy, and clickbait. I'm actually talking about what makes these things interesting. And essentially that means I'm talking about what I find interesting about why we find things interesting. Um, earlier this month, a guy named Ryan Langdon posted a tweet uh, to an article that he'd written. And the article was titled, Today I learned that some people don't have an internal monologue and it has ruined my day. <laughs> and this intrigued me, naturally, because it turns out some people cannot hear words in their head. Is this also blowing your mind? Some of you are going, no, this is normal for me. Um, <laughs> and so that's, that's actually amazing. It, this very simple idea went viral. Suddenly people started talking about this what it might mean to have no internal monologue, silence inside your brain. That is quite something. He then went on and interviewed some people, and one of, one of the things that he wanted to figure out is what makes your experience, what, what is your experience of life like? And one of the things in the interview that really struck me is that the woman he was interviewing was perplexed as to why anyone would find this interesting. And that gives us a clue into the interesting already, that, that some people will find certain things interesting and others won't. The people that find it interesting that it's possible to have no internal monologue are people who have an internal monologue. The people who don't find it interesting are the people who don't have an internal monologue. Why are some things interesting to some people? and? not to, to others. So, I mean, there are several questions. Why do some things go viral and others don't? Why do some things stand out while others don't? 
And in particular, I'm interested in the difference, the distinction between the interesting and the uninteresting. And to really get to the heart of this, I've decided to unpack four things. What is true, but not necessarily interesting? What is interesting, but not necessarily true? Where these two things overlap, where something can be interesting and true, like the fact that some people don't have internal monologue. And then lastly, I want to just unpack a few thoughts that I've had about what this could mean. Many things are true, but not interesting. So I want to actually explore just very briefly what makes anything true. This is a very contested terrain, of course. And the modern conception, which is the one that we've mostly adopted in our culture, tends to be, I think, a quite a naive conception of truth. Truth is, is built around either an empirical certainty, a kind of univocal certainty, or an equivocal postmodern conception which, which leads us into post-truth terrain. Everything is relative, there is no absolute, that kind of thing. But both of those conceptions of truth, I think, are very naive. And so what I want to unpack very briefly is Thomas Aquinas' understanding of truth. So Aquinas is a scholastic philosopher and I think probably the greatest philosopher who's ever lived. And he says this very bizarre thing, but which is just amazing. He says, all things are true. And to your minds, that will immediately strike a chord of no. But what he means is, is actually quite literal. Everything that is, everything that has being, is true. The fundamental measure of truth is not what you think about things or what you say about things. It is in reality itself. If it has existence, it is true. And now your thoughts have existence, and some of those thoughts are not true. They are true to the extent that they have existence, but they are not true to the extent that they do not match up with the reality of things. So, Truth is the conformity of mind and being. You could say a kind of dynamic dialogue of mind and being. They're intertwined. So here are some things that are true. Everything in this room and everything outside of it. That's pretty cool, but not necessarily that interesting. So here's what Thomas Merton, another Thomas, says. Um, he says, we are too much like Pilate. We are always asking, what is truth? And then crucifying the truth that stands before our eyes. But since we have asked the question, let's answer it. Truth in things is their reality. That's where we start. We start with reality itself. That is true. In our minds, it is the conformity of our knowledge with the things known. In our words, it is the conformity of our words to what we think about the things known, about what is actually existent. And in our conduct, it is the conformity of our acts to what we are supposed to be. So there's an idea that there is already a pattern in being, a pattern in reality that we need to fit into. And as soon as we are at odds with that pattern, things are going to go wrong. So truth is not just about what you think or say. It is about what is there, and it is about what you do. In fact, so, so the, the primary foundation of ethics itself is reality. So um, in, in the classics, you have being being convertible with truth, tr being equals truth. But you also have being as convertible with goodness, being equals goodness. And what's cool for me is that in Christianity, there's this idea that truth is the truth of being, the truth of reality, is always between two minds. First, the mind of God, and then the mind of people, the mind of humanity. 
So God's mind first. God knows things into existence. Things actually have their reality because they are known primarily by God. And in a sense, God is more real than the truth in things because he is the source of their reality. So you could look at everything that we know, everything, individual, the stuff that we see, that is a kind of secondary reality to the primary reality, which is God. And this is actually something sensed even in postmodern conceptions of truth. Because if everything is related to God, if everything is relative to God's reality, then everything is contingent, meaning that it, it can change. It can, it's mutable. God is immutable. It's possible for things to also be, the word contingent means it, that it's possible for things to be other than what they are. So you could have been born with four arms, and nine heads, that kind of thing, which would have been very unesthetic, but we would have had to work with it. It's interesting that things could be different from what they are. And the postmodern conceptions of relativism, there's very few postmodernists actually would say that there's something like absolute relativism. That's a contradiction in terms. There's a recognition that truth itself as we know it is relative. But I'll get to that more on that in, in, in a bit. To treat all secondary realities as primary, to mistake the truth of things as we know them for the absolute truth that is God is what in biblical language we could call idolatry. As soon as anything in the contingent realm becomes absolute to you, something like an ideology, that is idolatry. It's a, it's a shrunken down because it essentially starts to take the truth of all things that Aquinas is saying and saying it's the truth of some things. We need to truncate and shrink down our conception of reality to arrive at the truth. But this brings us to how, how we understand how we know the truth. The human mind is the second thing that the truth of things is caught between. Caught between the mind of God and the mind of man. We are part of the contingent world. And so we are actually included in the truth of all things. This is a very strange thing. It's like, we're, you know those stories about the kid who's living on a hill and then he takes a journey and then he looks back and he realizes the hill is a giant. The reality is we can never see exactly where we are because we're already in the drama. We're part of the truth of being itself. And so we know things in a very incomplete way. We're inside the artwork, unaware of exactly where it ends, where the frame is. So while God knows things absolutely, because he is absolute, the only absolute, actually, we can only know things incompletely, partially, and very much in keeping with our contingent being. We have, we're like, I, I kind of think of the con container metaphor. We're containers, and we can only hold so much. So not everything is going to go in. Um, although we are receptive to the truth of all things, which I find amazing. We always know towards wholeness. So if you think of the truth of all things as like the sum total of all that has reality, we know towards that, but we can never reach the end of it. Reason itself is of that whole, but it is never the whole. 
you can actually think of modern, again, modernity takes a kind of very arrogant leap forward and says it's possible to know in some sort of absolute sense. I think to some extent Hegel is responsible for that conception of truth. That you can get to the end, ultimately it's possible to get to the end of things, to have a total synthesis of all that is. But that that is actually, I think, a misunderstanding of what it means to be a contingent being. Even in the Bible, there's this idea in 1 Corinthians 13 that we know things in part. We see things as in a glass darkly. And I also love the fact that that is in the context of a discussion about the nature of love. It is not possible to know things truly without loving them. You cannot love things without knowing them. It's actually that they're also sort of related. A lot of people think of, of truth in terms of epistemology. Basically, truth is a matter of the possibility that we can actually take whatever we are perceiving and abstract it into some sort of rationalist terms. So truth becomes a matter of some sort of mental abstraction, a mental representation. But how we know truth is actually primarily, I think, a matter of experience. It's not primarily epistemology. That's important. It is phenomenology. Phenomenology is, to use very basic language, it's, it's, it deals with how things stand out or recede in our experience of them. You can test this out very simply. Um, if you take a nail and a hammer and you miss the nail, while you're holding it with your thumb. It's amazing how that pain will stand out and all of the rest of reality will recede. And so your experience, in some sense, the experience of that thing becomes absolute. That is all that matters. Pain is, is, can be a megaphone, as C.S. Lewis says, but it can also distort our perceptions of reality terribly. I think almost certainly anything can distort our perceptions if it becomes too much the focus. I actually love the fact that phenomenology comes from the word phenestai, the Greek word, which means to, to shine forth, which is just beautiful. Some things will shine forth for you, for you other things will recede into darkness, into obscurity. And when it comes to learning things, we learn things and then we get used to them. And then we forget them. So think of this very basic experience, the experience of learning how to drive. I remember the first time I got into a car, my dad, who is here, said, why don't you give it a try? And I had often changed gears for him, and I'd often, you know, when I was a kid, sat on his lap and, and moved the steering wheel. That was easy, but now you have to change gears, move the steering wheel, one pedal does one thing, another does another thing, and another does another thing. And for me, this was a total disaster. It seemed like a very bad system because it was so counterintuitive. And initially, the experience of driving is kind of bizarre. Well, at least it was for me. But now, I get into a car and I drive. I don't even think about what my limbs are doing. They just, I know what I need to do, not crash into the car in front of me, which is something you do not concentrate on when you're learning to drive. You're trying to get your coordination right, which is why so many accidents happen when you're learning to drive. And it's quite amazing that, that as you get to know things, they recede 
they become part of you. They become part of your mental environment. They're just normal. This is what psychologists refer to as habituation, habit-forming behavior. So things that we get used to start to disappear. They're not gone. They can come into awareness. Again, Heidegger uses this example of how you're using a hammer, and it's fine. Everything's fine. And then suddenly the, the little bit on the front, the metal bit, Heidegger would not explain it in these sort of frivolous terms because he's a very serious guy. He had this sense of humor surgically removed when he was three. Um, the hammerhead fell off, and he would say that now you now have to cope with the hammer because it's not just this ready-to-hand automatic thing that you're just using without thinking, which is how we relate to most things. It's something now you have to relearn what to do with this. How do I fix this? How can I actually make it work again in the way that I want it to? So when we get used to things, they stop being interesting. That's the fundamental thing about what is interesting is the stuff we're not used to. I think that habituation is linked to a problem that is named by philosophers as the forgetting of being, the forgetting of existence itself. It's, I think, the forgetting of the sheer miraculousness of existence itself. We all get caught up in this. There's a sort of process of we, we wake up, and then it's like you're, well, I mean, depending. I'm a morning person, luckily. So waking up, is there's an automatic sort of I'm on the go. I've got things to do. There's tasks to perform, and then I'm at work kind of thing. And then there are more tasks to perform. It's a very fluid thing with lots of momentum in it. But it's very difficult to actually stop for a moment and go, wow, I'm actually here. How did I get here? The, probably the most important question, one of them, that you can ask. How did I get here? How is it that there is something and not nothing? And a great example of the forgetting of being, I think, is related to um, ESCOM. The fascinating thing about how people, and maybe this is not true of you, but it seems to me, and certainly in the social media sphere, the, the reaction to the lights not working, the electricity not working, is, is, do you th is it positive, overwhelmingly positive? Wow, I'm so grateful I had lights. That's not, that's not our usual response. It's very normal to respond with, ESCOM is full of incompetent people. How dare the government have been so corrupt to, you know, have gotten into all these terrible things. There's, those are all true. You know, there, there are problems there. But our first thought is to pay attention to the loss as if the gift of the thing itself was not a gift. And it's weird. So the thing shows up. It's now suddenly very interesting. And that's why everyone's social media is a great way to test whether people find things interesting or not. Because some things just show up. And everyone is sharing this experience of the loss of power and I think there is so many. There are metaphorical levels to that, too. Everyone's sharing the experience, but they forget. I mean, I'd love to see a comment. Maybe I should be the first to do it. Maybe you can be the first to do it, to say, isn't it wonder amazing that we've had electricity? This is a very new human invention. It's been going on for a very short time in human history. And somehow the people before us survived. We know they survived because we're here. 
kind of amazing. So the forgetting of being is often interrupted when things break or when things are interesting, but being as a gift is not totally recovered. We are often prone to merely complaining rather than recognizing the gift. And I think it's a reminder of how easily a gift can recede from consciousness. You know this also from your experience of buying a new thing, your new phone. Woo, I've got a new phone. And then in a couple days, this miraculous object, which can launch satellites if you have the right app, just recedes from consciousness. Amazing. So we are surrounded by the truth. The truth is in all things. But certainly, our experience is that not all of it is very interesting. In fact, you could argue that most of it is not very interesting. Maybe it would be too overwhelming if that were true. What is interesting is, by definition, what stands out. It, it is the thing that grabs our attention. And another way of understanding it is that it is the abnormal thing. And sometimes, the abnormal thing is not true which I'll get to some examples of how that plays out. So there are two formulas. Formula one, well, th this just is about the difference of one thing from another. So the first formula for what makes things interesting is, does this particular thing differ from the norm? Difference. The second formula for how to make things interesting, you can state it as, as follows. The thing that you thought was false is true, and the thing you think is true is false. So it's, there's, a, there's an inversion of the relationship between uh, truth and falsehood in the interesting. I would say that this is the formula that is predominantly adopted in the media sphere. The interesting stuff tends to, I'm, it sometimes is, this is different, as in the case of the uh, lacking an internal dialogue thing. Sometimes it's just different. Other times it is an actual inversion of our experience, and I'll give you some examples in a, in a bit. So there's this theorist named Murray Davis. He's the guy who picked up on the second formula that I've just given you. He wrote a paper called That's Interesting in 1970-ish, 71 maybe, and it has a very lengthy subtitle because academics are fond of those. Uh, something like, if I remember correctly, towards a, a phenomenology of sociology and a sociology of phenomenology. Uh, you, you, you were grabbed by the first bit and then you're like, the brain stops working. That's actually why academics use long words. You know that. It's to stop their students from thinking. It's a way to beguile them. If you want to read someone who, whose books are filled with lies but are actually um, very appealing to some people, Judith Butler, she's got this just absolute, like lots of long words together. But if you, if you unpack what she's trying to say, you realize there's nothing there. That's just a little bit of fun fact for those who don't care. So the, the claim of the interesting, it goes against common experience and it is justified in the name of the truth. This is very important. When people find things interesting, they want to believe that it is true. It's not good enough to merely subvert their opinions. I know this as from experience. If you totally subvert people's opinions, they just get angry with you. 
They do not find it interesting, they find it annoying. And there is a fine line <laughs> sometimes between those two things. Usually, we assume that what we are experiencing, what appears, is true. So we see a kind of relationship between ontology and phenomenology, between being and experience. But the interesting, especially in the media sphere, this kind of modern conception of the interesting, is it creates an absolute split between experience and being. This follows a very long philosophical trajectory uh, dating back to around Descartes' time, but possibly even before that, that, this idea that you can separate mind and being. And then you can play with them in the way that you want. The earliest, actually the earliest split, I think, is in the sophists. Uh, the, the, those people who invented rhetoric. The whole point of rhetoric was to make things interesting. Didn't matter if they were true. So you'd have rhetoricians standing in the public square arguing very strongly for one thing, and then in the next day stand in the public square and argue against them, their previous selves. And it was just about being interesting. I think there are a few people in the media sphere right now you could think of who do that. I'm not sure who they are. <laughs> I actually think it's possibly one of the qualifications, like the requirements if you become a politician. You have to be able to just say nonsense and make it interesting. Well, people will pay attention to you. Okay. Ah, coffee. Phenomenologically satisfying. Okay, so you, you get the pattern. You think this is true, but it isn't. This is true. It's very important that truth is used in the name of the interesting, otherwise people will not agree with it. What is quite amazing, I've noticed this in sort of various, especially very polarized debates. I'm sure you've seen plenty of those. We sort of live in the age of polarization. There's this very clear us versus them narrative. We're on this side and they're our enemy. As soon as you have that narrative, you can be certain that someone is lying. It's just obvious because there's no attempt being made to actually step into the other person's shoes and go, they're a human being like me. Terrible thing to have to assume. But they're a human being like me. They must have some good reasons for believing what they do. Let me find out what those are. That would be a good approach because it destroys that thing. In, more recently in theological circles, David Bentley Hart uh, published a book called That All Shall Be Saved where he explores the idea of universal salvation. And it is a very brilliantly argued book, but Hart is a bit pushy in his rhetoric. So he denigrates a lot of people along the way. Although never by name, he, he hints that this a so-called Thomist says this, whatever it is. The amazing thing that's happened as a result of that is not some people entering into the complexity of his argument, what they do is they just outright dismiss him. I thought, because this happened a decade ago with Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Same, same debate. Universal salvation is an option among Christians. We can consider its possibility. And I thought now a proper academic, someone of very high standing is producing a book I'm so looking forward to watching people debate ideas. <laughs> Turns out I am still naive about some things. Some of these very smart people just using ad hominems 
I don't know how it is that we've raised ad hominems to the level of a virtue in, in intellectual life, but anyway. What is forgotten, and this is what I'd like to point out, is that the figure, the interesting thing, is only interesting because of the ground. The thing that you find interesting is interesting because something supports it that has vanished from consciousness. On the whole, what grabs our attention owes its interest to what doesn't grab our attention. So that, that contradicts the second formula of what makes things interesting. It says, if you want to understand the interesting, to understand the interesting thing, not merely look at it and go, ooh, that's interesting. To understand it, you have to understand the ground. So the figure-ground relationship is a nice metaphor from, from the arts because it's, it's how, I mean, you notice this. Even if you're looking at a portrait, the figure is the thing in front. The ground is the thing you are barely paying attention to. No one looks at the Mona Lisa and goes, wow, that road behind her is really amazing. They're all fascinated with the smile. And I'm like, yeah, but the only reason that's interesting is because of all sorts of other stuff that's going on. The way that the Mona Lisa became the first art piece as celebrity. There's a whole culture around that, um, that sort of thing. So all human truths are, to some extent, relative. It's very important, to, and I mean relative in the sense of they are related to each other. I'm not a radical relativist. You have to, if you, are, if you believe in the truth, you have to believe in some degree of relativism. Not sort of ridiculous post-truth relativism, though. So the all truth that we know is actually a matter of degrees and kind. But what happens in a lot of media is a latching onto the figure with no mindfulness of the ground. Another way of saying this is that the extra mundane is grounded by the mundane. Another way of saying that is to say that beings, things, individual things, beings, are always grounded in being. Here's my theory. I think that people are desperately trying to regain a sense of the ground through the figure. It's not wrong to find things interesting. I hope it's not wrong. There are some problems with excessive interest in the interesting, which I'll get to. But we need the interesting as a means by which we can locate the ground. But this can be terribly abused. Last week, my wife and I saw Jojo Rabbit. And I would highly recommend that you go and see it. It's a really, it's a tonally diverse movie. So it's sort of framed in comedic terms. But then it, it gets pretty dark at certain points. But it follows a little boy who's 10 and how he has been totally taken up by the Nazi ideology. And in particular, he's interested in the figure of the Jew. But it's a very highly mythologized Jew. The mythologized Jew has horns, has kind of magic powers, can manipulate minds, can do that kind of thing. He's fascinated by this figure, but he adopts the figure, this fascination, as a means to try and make sense of his world, which is very messy. There's a war going on. His life is complicated. His father is not present. His father is somewhere else. 
So he's trying, and I think this is important to understand, even, even the worst ideologies, there must be something about what they're doing that is, that is trying to find the truth. Um, it is not possible to even lie without having some ground in the truth. Um, there's no such thing as pure evil because evil is a privation of goodness, that kind of thing. The tragedy, though, is when the figure becomes so all-consuming, it actually reverses the figure-ground relationship. The figure becomes the ground. And again, in every problematic ideology you've ever, ever encountered, far left, far right, it doesn't matter, there is a reversal of figure and ground. There's even a, a, a movement now called men going their own way. Have you heard of this? Men have assumed that the current feminist discourse, the fourth wave feminist discourse, which is very vitriolic, they've assumed that's the ground. They've, there's a figure that is of interest, that's the ground. And so what they've done is they've, they've detached themselves from social norms completely, and they're saying, we're, we're going to be single, celibate, we're not going to engage with women in any way. It's a... It's deeply psychotic, I think. It's a response to another kind of psychosis. But it's, it's a reversal of the figure-ground relationship. And I think that's, that it distorts, it forgets the truth of being, the truth of all things. It latches onto one thing. Um, and if we reverse the figure-ground relationship, the meaning that we are seeking will not be supplied. It will not actually arrive at a sense of understanding, and there'll be no compassion in that. It'll be filled with all sorts of discomfort and anxiety. So I just want to point two things out as we move towards a finish, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I do think that the interesting is potentially a sign of weakness. Note, I say potentially. and. I mean weakness as spiritual weakness. There's something spiritually problematic when people are obsessed with the interesting. They're, especially if I look at the online environment, the next, the next thing to get upset about. I think it's a sign of spiritual weakness because it, it sort of, I, I mean, it, it reflects what, what the Desert Fathers referred to as acedia metaphysical boredom, boredom with being. We know the word sloth because we all watch David Finch's Seven. <laughs> sloth is the predominant problem in our time. And you would think, no, that can't be true because sloth is laziness and we have an overly busy time. Well, excessive busyness is the direct result of sloth. It's a failure to pay attention to and to take care of being itself. A failure to acknowledge the gift of being. Results in a lazy spirit. If you are trying to endlessly distract yourself, endlessly have pings notify you of new things and constantly looking for the next thing to do, to avoid silence, this is why silence is in horror movies, right? It's, it's a reflection of... Because there's nothing more terrifying than silence in a horror movie. Why? People think it's because something's going to jump out. No, no. That's, that's the figure. The silence is the ground. That's the thing we're afraid of. 
there's a need for us to recover some sense of, okay, what's, what's going on in the ground? What do I need? I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself. I'm going to recommend a book. If you want to um, look at the problem of sloth and how it manifests in culture and probably in your own life, and it's going to be deeply uncomfortable, but it's going to help, uh, the writer is Jean-Charles Nault, uh, N-A-U-L-T, and his book is called The Noonday Devil. And he's actually writing to monks. And he's saying the, monk, the trouble with the monk gets into a space. They're supposed to be sitting in their cells and praying. That's all they're supposed to be doing. There's nothing complicated. And, and then around noonday, they, they, there's this probably helped by the heat, because this is in sort of North Africa that's, that this is happening. The heat of the day gets them all restless. And then they just want to leave the cell. And that's essentially what sloth does. It makes you want to leave wherever you've been placed and look for something else. Chesterton has this wonderful way of looking at, at attention and, and care, which are the antidotes to sloth. Stay in the cell, pray, it's fine. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. And then Chesterton goes on to say, but God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. He created the truth of all things. All of the things you don't find interesting are still gifts. And there is a way to recover that. Which brings me to, so remember, what I'm saying is not that the interesting is the opposition. I'm saying that the, in, the really interesting is the thing that helps us to recover being, re recover the gift of being. So I think, and this is my last point, that the interesting should always be a signpost of truth. Yes, the interesting can distract us. It can get us to focus on the interesting thing itself and then all the opinions that multiply around the interesting. Because that's what happens, isn't it? Like something sparks up on social media and then there's this frenzy of people going, I have an opinion, look at me. But what happens if it becomes a way of saying, okay, wow, that, that's an, that is interesting. What is the ground? And what is truer than this mere being separate, this mere collection of beings separated from being itself? There's this wonderful story by Chesterton called The Adventures of Major Brown. Chesterton is the inventor of something called an alternate reality game. Have any of you seen the movie The Game? It's a great one. Uh, although that is the nihilistic inversion of what Chesterton meant. Um, there is this idea of a company that designs life experiences. You pay them to design a story around your life. And so there's this idea of using adventures. Some, somewhere out of the blue, you get a call from someone say, saying something deeply mysterious. The idea behind designing this life game, this game that happens in real life, for Chesterton, is to recover the gift of your life itself. And I think that there is a way even to, to use that idea to look at the way that we live now and to see it as much more of an adventure than as a, as a sort of thing filled with hindrances. But I will say this, 
Surprisingly, the cure to sloth is rest. And I think that that sloth produces restlessness, kind of constant bustle, or, yes, it does produce sheer detachment, disconnection from reality. But unless we find some sort of rest, we're not going to be happy, really. So I, I want to finish with that, and then now that I've bombarded you with a lot of things, I'd love to hear what you think and if there's something that you find interesting. I hope that this talk has been profoundly dull. I've actually... But, okay. Hopefully. Uh, is that GK? GK, Chesterton. If you decide to read one book in your whole life, I kid you not, it is a book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy. And then if you want to read another one, you can read a book by Duncan Rayburn <laughs> <laughs> on G.K. Chesterton. But yeah. I, I, Vera first and then, yeah. Thank you, Duncan. I think you, you have given us a lot of things to think about. Um, can I just ask one, can you explain ad hominem for us? Oh, yes. Th good, good idea. I sometimes take things for granted, the ground that I'm from. In ad, an ad hominem is the lowest form of argumentative strategy. Instead, it actually literally means to the man. So instead of dealing with the issue to discuss ideas in, in, an, in a space of discourse, there is a um, shift to point to whoever is speaking and say what a three-year-old would say, you smell, or your ideas stink. Or that, that, it sounds like parliament, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's policy number one. If you come to parliament, you must use lots of ad hominems. Um, yeah. It's terrible that that's become the normal strategy of people. And then the... Uh, I have a question. Yes. What is an internal monologue? What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I saw that article. Yes. So it's the, it, the way that Ryan Langdon describes it. An internal monologue is the ability to hear words inside your head without speaking. Out loud. Is this surprising to you, Steve? Like, I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm still not sure if I have one or not. The, the capacity to toy, I don't know, the, the, I can only speak from my experience here. <laughs> but the capacity to toy with ideas in your head and to actually have a conversation, you create two characters in your head and you can play it out. That's an internal monologue. Uh, I read the article, but I can't believe that people don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the question, the first question would be, do you, can you hear words in your head? Can you think a thought, think of a sentence even, without speaking it aloud? And the, their answer is no. And in the interview I watched with this woman who actually has this thing, she, she, she answers the question like, yeah, I just, I have a kind of shape in my head and I then, I know more or less the shape. It's like a very abstract sort of detached, it's amazing. I, I, like, she has the shape of how the essay is going to look and she's a writer, she loves writing. But she cannot think of the sound of a word inside her head. 
Maybe one of you. And like, it's it's very cool. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> you had a question. No, I just wanted to say, I forgot to say, that's a nice way of describing ad homina. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's sadly what's happening even in universities. What, what I've actually found really surprising is entire discourses are built on ad hominems. As soon as you have one, it's, it's all the, the women's studies, critical race theory, those ones. They're rooted in ad hominems. The actual starting point is someone is a problem or some group of people is a problem and we're right. It boggles my mind that no one goes, but hang on a minute, that's just argumentatively weak. It's not looking at issues, it's looking at, it's playing the person, not the ball, yeah. You had a... Um, I found myself thinking in Facebook statuses. Oh, wow. I, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Yes, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so one of the... Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if you've had that experience, but even, even the idea that someone can say one thing, I mean, I found it very interesting the way that Ryan Langdon framed it. I've just learned that some people do not have an internal monologue, and it has ruined my day. That's how he framed it. Like, wh wait, what part about that should ruin your day? And I mean, I, I think he... He was being a little bit facetious, but I think there is this idea that we can even read something someone said on social media and be greatly distressed, and the rest of the day can be ruined. Um, remember that media shape the way we think. And so we will start to think like our tools, not just with our tools. You, uh, and I'm sure you've discovered this even. I've, I've found in the way that I write on a computer it's radically different to how I write when I'm just writing by hand. I started, for my doctorate, I, I wrote, everything was on a screen, and then for my book, I actually decided to start note-taking with pen and paper. It's much slower, almost annoyingly so, but my thinking was much more, more coherent. Oh, well done. That's amazing. Yeah. Is I think I feel I experience in the writing process rather than the typing. I'm removed once I'm done. Yes. So, so everything is in the writing, and I, I, I write it. I don't care how long it takes. And I have a stretch out, and you go to the other side of the page and add, and it's, it's chaos. But in that chaos, it's for me such an experiential reality. It's far more than it it's wonderful, I, but, and I mean, you'll know this as a therapist, if you're recommending that someone keeps a journal for their mental health, they have to write it by hand. I always ask them, are you going to write like this or like this, I ask them. And what, do, what does everyone say? They, they often say, I mean, once they go through the process, they often say that they're writing. I don't actually lock them into that, but I do make them aware that there's a difference. Yeah. That's, it's, it's also, I, I have known, so my, my nephew is 15. He's got this, um, I, I said, to, I really suggested that he starts to keep a journal of some kind, but he's 15. He doesn't care about writing, oh my word, like why would, <laughs> so, so I said, well, 
would you record voice memos? So he does that. So that's, I, I do think some sort of connection with our bodies is a really important thing. Uh, the central, one of the central um, ideas in Christianity is in the incarnation, not one of the, it's the whole point. The incarnation, reality is incarnate. It's not just some sort of detached out there thing. And, and when we ourselves learn how to descend into our bodies, we gain, we gain all things, to quote St. Paul. One of, uh, that's very well put. One of the ways to understand technology especially is to know every technology is a response to a spiritual deficit and a spiritual need. So why, my question to myself, this is my speculation, I can't say this with absolute certainty, but why have we developed digital technologies which are essentially representations of a kind of Gnostic mythological realm? where the gods battle it out. The gods happen to be us, but whatever. But it's this detached realm. It, it is, I think, a direct result of a highly materialistic 19th century world. That, that the natural result of disenchanting the world would be to create some form of enchantment. The computer is a substitute for God. That's, oh, cell phones, the same potential thing. And that's, again, why I would say, okay, that's the figure, that's the computer, that's the digital Gnostic realm. It's an, it's, I mean, there are, let's say, healthier forms of Gnosticism. This is one of the more unhealthy forms. This, un, this unhealthy form of Gnosticism may be the figure that can help us to reattach to the ground. And that has started to happen, even in certain cultures. We spoke about that a little bit in my last talk, even the idea of people um, trying to like, work out their psychological health out there so they can reflect on it, or the minimalist movement, or a return to stoicism. There's a kind of reattachment to the body that, that is happening through this weird Gnostic realm. But, but currently, to treat it as, as more absolute is, is a problem. Over here, I think you had a question. Yeah. Well, I, it, my question comes right in line here. So I noticed that clickbait or fake news proliferates quickly than actual truth, right? Yes. Um, so, what strategies do you suggest to keep you maximally bounded to reality and not fall for this yeah. distinction of being? I'm gonna I'm gonna do follow C.S. Lewis's recommendation. Read old books. <laughs> no, really. Like so. So one of the things, the troubles with reading, let's say, the latest, the latest, newest book. Um, it's like the latest fashionable thing. It's not that. Again, it's not that that's wrong. That is reflecting something. And I'm a, at least part-time cultural theorist. I would like to understand these things. But the way to really connect with the world is to understand the old stuff. So Lewis's recommendation is, I think, if I remember correctly, for every five books you read, one of those should be old. Like old. 
Like St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, that kind of old. St. Augustine, I've just finished St. Augustine's City of God. It's just amazing. And you also suddenly realize when you're reading Augustine's Confessions, you're like, uh, wait, this whole Western trajectory towards even existentialism is rooted in St. Augustine. Amazing. So suddenly you understand the ground, and then the figures, Camus is far less interesting than Augustine, although he's still very interesting. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, I don't think we have time to go into this question, but um, I'm just noticing how there are layers of figure before ground, which is figure before ground, which yes. is figure before ground, which makes it quite complex, just in terms of if you think about social media, yeah. how the clickbait stands out before something else, but that is actually standing out because that's the feed you're getting yeah. because of our algorithms, which is before the rest of the social media, which is before the background of real life. And <laughs> One of the ways to understand that is to look at the fact that we are the content of every medium we use. We are trying to find ourselves. That's why everyone's taking Instagram shots and tweeting. They're trying to locate who they are. And, and so, but, but the ground of being is God's mind. And I think that once we start to find that, we don't get so caught up in the layers. We can actually start finding some sort of rest. Otherwise, it gets, I think it just gets kind of manic. But I'm very grateful for your ears and for your time. I hope this has been somewhat edifying.